You are now listening to the Claim It Podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. We go through the journey of their life. We go through the ups, the downs, the jobs they've had, what has made them do what they are doing and got them to where they are right now, and also how they get through the day right now, because I believe that our feelings of being enough, worthy, successful, lovable, whatever it is, are not out there somewhere. Once I have the perfect job, relationship, kids, this much money can buy this car, then I'll feel this for the rest of my life. Those feelings are things we got to claim for ourselves every single day, sometimes every moment of the day. On today's episode, I have Harper Spiro. She is a business coach, podcast host. I was a guest on her podcast, Made Visible, writer. And um, she works with clients primarily to create businesses they love and determine how to get their idea and their work out into the world. Because, you know, you can be passionate about something. It can be something you know is amazing and change people's lives, but getting it out there and actually putting yourself out there can come with lots of challenges internally and externally. So let's get into Harper's story and see how that is where she got to and why she's so passionate about it. Hi, Harper. Hello, Trisha. So happy to be here. So happy to talk to you now on on my podcast after being on yours, which was really fun for me to talk about things differently since we'll talk about why and why you focus on what you do in your podcast. Um, but let I like to start kind of at the very, very beginning. No. <laughs> but what was life like for you growing up? And then, you know, growing up and then I also like to feel like high school ages because I feel like that's when we start to feel a lot of pressure on like, oh, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I loved having you on my show and certainly we'll get into that. Uh, it was interesting. I was listening to old episodes of yours of people I know or have worked with and just listening to hear their stories. And I'm like, wow, she talks about high school stuff. It's not a topic I bring up a lot. It's not a time in my life that I think about often. So it really got me thinking. Born and raised in New York City, below 23rd Street, have a lot of pride around that if it means anything to you or your listeners, real downtown. And I am an only child, and I have really incredible, supportive, amazing parents that I'm super, super close with. I am currently quarantined with them for the last six months. Did not expect that to ever be the situation, that after 17 to be living with my parents, but here we are. Um, and yeah, I grew up in the city, you know, and so many people never seem to understand, like, what was that like? Like, how did you live without a backyard, and how did you not have these things? And it's all I knew. So for me, it was just the norm that Central Park and Gramercy Park and sort of the local parks were my backyards and the streets of New York were my backyards, which was incredible. I went to a super, super small private school, which was great. I made some incredible friends, some of whom I'm still in touch with now. But for me, I was always more of a learn by doing than being a student. So sitting in a classroom and focusing and doing homework and test taking was always a struggle for me. And it was one of those things where I would, you know, do okay in arts 
and creative writing and sort of all the things that play out in my life now, but history and science and math, I just could not get through those things. They were torture to me and I never understood how they would ever be relevant to my life now. And they're not. So it really confirms like, why did we need to learn that in those days? But I, you know, in high school, being in the same school, kindergarten to 12th grade was pretty crazy. And I think by sophomore, junior year, it was like, I'm ready for a bit of a change. Like this is a lot of the same people. My graduating class was 42 people. And there were 10 of us that started since kindergarten. So it's a lot of the same. And so also though, but you're living in downtown New York City. So like you have to be, you know, experience so many diverse people and cultures. But in your private school, was it, you know, primarily made up of a certain, you know. It was pretty white, a lot Jewish. It wasn't a Jewish school, but it definitely had a lot of Jewish people. I think I had one I had one black girl in my grade at one point and one black boy in my grade at one point. They both were not there, K through 12. Other grades, not mine, had more diversity, but for whatever reason, mine was not. And I hate to say it, that's unfortunately a lot of the private school system, especially in New York City. So, and there's some public schools in the city that are like private schools, like Stuyvesant, that are really reputable, like amazing, amazing schools that do have more diversity because they are public, I guess, um, that are like art schools and amazing, amazing programs. But yeah, there was very little diversity considering it was New York City and there is so much diversity and different languages you're exposed to and all of that. Yeah. And so then what were you, what were you feeling? Cause yeah, you said you weren't into yeah science, history, math, which I, I'm the same way. I learn more by doing, I was not interested in school. Like I was someone that was lucky in that, like, I guess I could be good at memorizing things or like filling it out. Like I'd be like studying before the test and like get it, but I didn't care. Like I didn't care about getting good grades or anything. And like, (laughs) and, um, but I actually loved math. That was an odd thing about me. And I still do. I still like love to handwrite math instead of like, like I'll like be adding all these numbers up instead of using a calculator. Hate it all. (laughs) Hate it all. Still do. Want nothing to do with it. You know, in doing what I do for, for a living, which we'll get to when it comes to like budgeting and stuff with money, I'm like, Someone else, please, like not me. But um, so yeah, so what were you, did you have ideas about, you know, again, like when we're in high school, we feel this pressure, like, okay, what are you going to do with your life? You're going to have, you know, where are you going to go to college? You have to do this. And like, so whether that's from, you know, teachers, parents and stuff like that, what did you start to feel like? Or did you know, like, I'm definitely going to college or this is what I want to do with my life? Or did you have those sorts of feelings? So when I was a junior in high school, September 11th happened. Right. Whatever. Sophomore or junior, 2001. Yeah. I was in school and 9-11 happened and my school was on the Upper East Side. And my mom ran a holistic health care center a few blocks from where I grew up. And it opened shortly. um, Did I say owned? Ran. (laughs) You said yeah, I'm not sure if you, I'm not, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say that again. My mom ran a holistic healthcare center a few blocks from where I grew up 
And so this opened shortly before 9-11 and it became this sort of safe haven and wellness center for police and firefighters and first um, responders to come to during that really, really crazy time. And I was really involved from a volunteer perspective, mainly for managing volunteers, because we had tons of people showing up at the door saying, how can we help? How can we be supportive? I have food, I have clothes, I have resources, whatever you need. And I was just sort of manning the door and helping to facilitate being as helpful as possible. And how old were you? I'm going to say 16, 17. Yeah. And your mom, she opened this center before 9-11 happened. So it just happened. It wasn't like, oh, okay, let me open this to support people. Yeah. I'm going to say it was like months before my mom's cousin opened it and asked my mom to help her run it. And so it was this amazing, gorgeous space for people who know design. They probably know the designer, Cloda. She's really well known for her design. She created the whole space. It was stunning. They had everything you can think of that's like hot and modern now that was so woo-woo then. Right. So that's what Uh I'm thinking. Like right now, that would be like even like, oh, wow, you're opening a new like holistic wellness center. Back then, maybe people are like, what are you, Who? what's happening? It was so, so out there. And it was interesting because they did modernize it and make it sort of very... Uh, approachable, but people didn't know about this stuff. Like what's Ayurveda and what's Reiki and reflexology. Like these are so foreign to people at that time. Right. Like, I feel like I went to a chiropractor like in high school and that was like, totally. you know, what? <laughs> like, yeah. That was like a foreign, like alternative medicine. And like now that's so, <laughs> yeah. So, so I really loved that experience of being able to help facilitate and be a me- play a meaningful role during this really tra- challenging time in my city. And so one of the things we were required to do in high school was we had to do 60 hours of community service every year. I'm sorry, in our full uh, high school years. And for a lot of people, that was like really, really daunting. What am I going to do? How am I going to have the time to do this? And oftentimes it was like, okay, I guess I'll go to this walk at 9 a.m. in Central Park and participate in that. And it just was not something that people were embracing. It felt like a forced action. And after 9-11, a teacher of mine, who was actually um, the administrative assistant to the headmaster, she and I talked and said, maybe we should create a community service club. And so she and I created this club when I was a junior in high school. And basically the concept was to come together and create activities for the high school to engage in to get their community service. So it was either let's all come together on a Saturday and make sandwiches and deliver them to homeless shelters or some other activity where we came up with a clear intention, got people involved, and then went and took these actions instead of racing to get to the 60, like exceeding the 60 hours because you're actually enjoying what you're doing and feel good giving back. So that was huge, huge part of my high school experience. And so that's, you're not just like, I'll look up ways to help and match people like you're creating ways like, yeah, let's get together and build sandwiches. Let's all whatever. Do this. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And and I think it was just a fun way to engage my, you know, friends and, and my I was going to say coworkers, my classmates um, to do something that could be fun instead of something daunting and, oh, you know, I hated math. 
they hated going to the walk or like making sandwiches. Well, how can we make it fun? Can we play music? Can we all come together in a fun place? If we did the walk, let's make signs together before, like really make it fun than this thing that you're just sort of dreading doing. And to be honest, I'm certain that that's what got me into college. So for me, like that's what got you accepted to college. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, my grades were like C plus, B minus. They weren't very good. You know, I, I've gone back in, in being in quarantine this amount of time. I've gone back through my report cards and wow, I posted some photos on Instagram and people were going wild. I was just disruptive. You know, I was like, everyone said Harper's really intelligent. If only she applied herself. Uh, if she wasn't talking, if she wasn't playing with lip gloss. I mean, that said, that said <laughs> in my report card. So she wasn't playing with lip gloss. It was it was a huge hit on Instagram. Maybe my most my most engaged story. <laughs> so for that, it was um, you know starting to apply for colleges and exploring what options I had. And I knew, and conversations I had with my parents that I wanted to be somewhere close to New York, not a flight away. Definitely a major city because I was definitely a city person. Am a city person. And so we looked in Boston and we heard that Northeastern had this co-op program that allowed you to work every other semester instead of just being in classes. And as I said, I was more of a like doer than sit in a classroom and learn. So I loved this idea. It was the number one school at the time that did that. So work every other semester. So does that mean like, so you're in one semester of going to classes, whatever, 12, 15, 18 hours of classes. I'm trying to remember how they do college. And then so the next semester you're not taking classes. You are working for your credit hours. Like, Correct. it's not like, oh, you get to work. Yeah, work, whatever. Like have an internship while you're also taking classes. Very cool. Oh, so so that was, and it was a five-year program and I was to- totally cool with that because then it gave me firsthand experience to be able to learn and apply myself and decide what industries or roles or companies I was interested in. Because also at so, that time, did you did you know? I mean, it seemed like you really enjoyed... I don't know, community building, but I don't know what that looks like, I guess, if you're like, how do I make? (laughs) It's interesting because I don't think I really knew how that would correlate in a career. Right. So all I know is that after going to Boston and discovering Northeastern, I was 100% set. This is where I'm going. This is it. And when I went to my college counselor, she was very clear that I was not getting into that school. Sorry. And I basically said, no, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I said, I basically said, fuck you. I'm going to this school and whatever I have to do, I'll do. And, you know, I met with lots of people at college fairs and stuff like that, really trying to figure out what they were looking for and the type of, you know, students they were looking for. And it was clear that me having this community service background, especially after 9-11, was really a powerful thing. You know, I did some extracurricular stuff, but it was all sort of nothing. At one point, someone suggested that I sign up for a sports team just to, you know, be participatory in school activities. And I signed up for volleyball. And I'm certain the only reason that I was on the team was because the teacher felt bad for me. I mean, he, you know, I was not a good athlete. I'm still not a good athlete. My friends would come and watch me and just sort of point and laugh at like how pathetic I was. And I knew that I wasn't like an aspiring athlete. So I did end up getting into Northeastern. 
and I had several other friends get in before me. And it was interesting coming from this super small high school that five of us went to Northeastern. And um, it was, yeah, it was, it was this place where I thought was just going to be such an amazing experience that would allow me to be myself and be in a larger community because Northeastern was 15,000 students and I was coming from this class of 42. And it ended up not really being for me. Although I met my best friends for life, people I talked to every single day, freshman year of college, we all lived on the same floor and just instantly hit it off. It was just not my place. It was too big and going from New York to Boston, in my opinion, is really challenging. I was used to having things be open, you know, 24 seven. And it was a city that really shuts down early. The tea shut down at like 1230 or one. So you couldn't get around unless you were walking or taking cabs and cabs weren't really a thing when we were 17. And then, you know, I was used to having a diner. Like seriously, those are things that, that I valued so much in New York City life. You know, in my late high school years, I went out with my friends until, you know, midnight, 1, 2 a.m. And like that wasn't really a thing in Boston. So it was just a huge adjustment. And I think from a school perspective, a lot of the challenges for me was it was all these huge classes where no one really cared if I was there. And if I didn't show up, it wasn't really a big deal. And I know that that's sort of part of college experience, big school, but it felt like a bit of a waste. I really used college as a social experience, made my best friends, partied really hard, but Boston and the school didn't really cut it for me. And when it came time to doing that internship, I discovered that a lot of my friends that did their internships were all working at the same places. So if they were in the same field like communications, everyone that was interested in PR, advertising, marketing, events, all worked at the same one agency because that was the only contacts that at the time Northeastern had. And that wasn't interesting to me. I had contacts in New York and was like, I'd rather work at places in New York through connections that I had through family and friends. And after two and a half years in Boston, moved back to New York. Got it. So you did stick it out for two and a half years and do some of the internships there, I'm guessing as well. And then I actually ended up not doing any of the internships, strictly stayed in school for that period of time. I don't entirely remember, but my first year I was in like a general studies program. I think it was the kind of thing where, because I maybe shouldn't have gotten in because my grades weren't good enough. This was the like, let's see if we can, if you can pull this off for the first year kind of thing. And we're going to have you take like baby steps um, which I did for a year. And I think then I had to do another full year. I don't remember the logistics of that, but basically I was there for two and a half years, came back to New York, finished at Mary Mount Manhattan with a six month stint at FIT, but none of my tr- credits transferred there. So that didn't last and worked internships, which is what I was really passionate about doing. And what were you like in at Northeastern? were you starting to see at least like what, like, oh yeah, I think maybe I want to do this type of work or I don't want to do this. And like, yeah, when you move back to New York and yeah, you, and FIT, that's fashion Institute, right? So is that, they have an amazing, they have amazing advertising and marketing program. So is that what you were 
looking at? Yeah, exactly. So I remember orientation at Northeastern. I can picture exactly where I was sitting and being given a course catalog. And I opened up the course catalog and they went around and said, what's your name, where are you from, and what's your major? And because I was in this general studies program for the first year, I was told I didn't have to have a major. So all of a sudden I was on the spot of being asked, what's your major? And I opened up this book and I was like, communications? And just sort of said it with no real understanding of what that was and why I was choosing it. But my dad owns a media buying agency in sports and entertainment. And so I was certain that that was something that I was interested in either working for him or getting into the communications field, advertising or marketing was just compelling to me. I had had some internships in late high school, early college years at a music, at a record label. And that was really interesting to me. So I think that like this communications world was definitely enticing to me. When I came back to New York and finished up school, I interned at Bobby Brown Cosmetics in the PR department. And I was obsessed, obsessed with makeup, like absolutely beyond words. And Going so back to your report card. Yeah, I'm yeah, glad exactly. that that carried through. <laughs> let's, let's be honest. I've got my lip gloss right here. Um, so, so I think for me, that was like a dream job. Wow. This like massive company of amazing products, super reputable. I'm going to be on the PR team. And shortly into working there, one of my managers left and they didn't replace her for a while. And I basically filled her role. So while I was taking PR 101 in college, I was writing press releases and sending products and in touch with editors on a regular basis. So it was this amazing experience of like, learning the foundation from school, but also having this real life experience. And, you know, the thing that I've recognized in my career is that I've always just taught myself. I've, I've never had someone train me or teach me how to do what I do. It's all figure things out as I go and learn by doing. And that was certainly the case even that early on. And like I said, I think I, I mostly work that way too. I mean, I, I do, I, I do a lot of asking <laughs> for questions, but that, yeah, it's like a lot of like having to figure out my way and work works best for me and doing things. But did you ever feel like, or did anyone make you feel like that wasn't the right way to learn, you know, or like that wasn't the right way to do it? I will say that I have a, a chronic cough and we'll get to the health stuff. No, I feel like my Everyone was very supportive, and I think if I did a good job, no one really questioned if they needed to train me better or more, um, and I think it was the kind of jobs where it was like, you either sink or swim, you know, especially in the beauty business, especially in PR, like, figure it out. If you're not yeah, going to- Yeah, like, they don't want to waste their time probably on, like, you need to do all this, like, here, that's, this is, we're going to see if you cut it or not, if you can figure this out, <laughs> like, that's, because there's probably yeah. hundreds of girls lining up waiting to take that spot. I wrote an article a few years ago where I talked about some of, some of the challenges of working in PR, especially in beauty, of, you know, putting together gift bags for editors, and at one point, my, my boss, not my manager, called me into her office, slammed the door behind me, and showed me a bag that was being sent to Vogue that I had put together and shunned me for how the tissue paper was placed in the back. And at that point, it did feel like life or death of like, wow, I'm eight, I'm 20 years old and I'm being ripped apart for this. Like, how am I going to make it? How can I figure this out? And at the same time, I definitely still was like, 
this is ridiculous. Like it's tissue paper. But the fact that she felt like she needed to train me on how to place the tissue paper, but she said, but think about it. Think about all the other bags that are going to be in the mailroom that are going to be delivered to these editors. And this is going to look like this. And it's interesting because I continued to work in beauty for a few years after that. But I think there are moments that were total signs of like, you don't belong in this industry. It's way too like perfectionism than, you know, you are for, for a field like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you stayed in doing beauty PR and like, yeah, graduated. Then you are working in PR for beauty companies. And did you move around besides Bobby Brown or do you stay there? And like, yeah, where did you decide to switch or go next? I moved around so much. Um, While I was actually working at Bobby Brown and in school, I also had a part-time job working for a music management company where I handled YouTube and website stuff for Rufus Wainwright. And, you know, thinking back, it was like early, early days of social media, especially for brands and artists. And I did like a YouTube contest with Rufus where people had to submit videos to us and each of their videos would be entered into a contest in order to have the opportunity to perform on stage with him for one song. And this was like so sort of bootleg done in a bootleg way of like emailing us the videos and like not having Google forms or anywhere to upload stuff and just doing it in the scrappiest way. Cause no one had ever done anything like this before. It was sort of first of its kind. I mean, obviously it's just, it's a weird thing to think about because it's such a long time ago, but I dabbled in that and that was really fun. So I really went back and forth on like what industry I was excited by as someone who loves music and like could see live music every single day. It, I wasn't sure if it was something I wanted to do professionally or not. So I toggled around a lot. I had eight jobs in 10 years. So when you ask if I move around, yes, the answer is definitely yes. Every August, I was miserable in a job. And every October, I made some sort of move. Was it really like that, like the months? Like, that's amazing. You can go look at my LinkedIn profile. And it's like, yep, we know when she had her when she had her breaking point. And we know how she made her move. It's just so linear. So I worked at a bunch of different places. I worked at um, Avon as well. I worked at a beauty PR firm. I worked at a private jet company for a brief time that was owned by a religious Jew and Swiss Beats, Alicia Keys' husband. Uh, Really sort of all these different things, but I worked in PR and marketing in all of these jobs. And along with not being trained for any of these jobs and being given any sort of real strict guidelines of how to do my job, I never replaced anybody. So each of these jobs were places where either they were looking for someone and never, no one had ever filled this role before, or it was something where I was obsessed with the company and determined to work there and they weren't hiring. And I just kept pushing and pushing and saying, you need me, you need me. And them letting me in and me sort of creating my own role for myself. So that was really, you know, my experience for, for many, many years and working for other people. The only other place that I don't think I mentioned was I worked at a tech startup where, which ended up being acquired by Salesforce years later. But yeah, I didn't last more than about a year at any of these places. And what, uh, what do you feel like made you drawn to 
PR and marketing? Because that's like, you know, you're out like, you need to know about this brand, right? Try this, like whatever way it is, whether you're sending a gift bag to a magazine editor to try the product or however. So like, do you know like what made you feel drawn to like spread other people's messages and raise awareness for them? Is that basically what PR is? <laughs> yeah, it is. It definitely is. That's a great question that I truly haven't thought about. Uh, you know, I, it definitely stems back to my dad in, in working in advertising for his entire career. Uh, and that seemed interesting to me, although the actual advertising was less interesting and I was more interested in marketing and PR. I think that just like the communications component, dealing with people on a daily basis and having brands or products that I was truly passionate about, you know, being someone who is obsessed with music or being someone obsessed with beauty products, to be able to share that message is still something that I do. Although both of those things are in no way part of my career at this point, I am someone that people rely on to what are the latest products that I need to have from Credo Beauty that I'm like swearing by these days? What concert do I need to go to? What, you know, Spotify playlist do I need to listen to? I have been that person for forever. So I think, you know, that probably was a part of it. The funny thing is, is I've had several conversations with a close friend of mine about this. I think I'm the hardest person to market towards because there is one, not one platform that I spend all of my time on. There's no one website or, or outlet that I follow religiously that everything they post and everything they share, I want to buy into. So it's interesting to think about that in that way, because I don't know how to market towards me, uh, but I know how to help market other people. Yeah. Well, I mean, even going back to you know, arranging the um, ways to volunteer in high school and stuff like that. And it's like, it sounds like you come alive and bringing people together. And then also like, it sounds like in spreading messages that, you know, are spreading brands, whether like love the lips, lip gloss, you guys got to try this lip gloss, whatever it is that like, it's definitely true. That, and that, yeah, it's interesting that you might be even better at trying different things in raising awareness about something because you're like not somebody that is so like this is what works for me and so yeah you know I think the big I think the big thing also is that I'm a really passionate person so when I'm like gung-ho about something I want to shout from the rooftops and be like guys this works so well you have to try you're it I'm all in <laughs> this band is the greatest band in the world you have to listen to it I mean and I will just co completely continue to nag people until they finally do what I'm sort of recommending because I know how much they'll appreciate it. And so what was, what started to make you turn to like wanting to work on your own or getting out of the PR and yeah, where did you, what, after all the one year, okay, like what was the next itch or? So I knew I wanted to work for myself for a really long time. And my parents kept sort of pushing you need to get the experience, you need to climb the ladder, you need to just sort of get your feet wet before you do your own thing. And you also don't know what your own thing is yet. So unless you have some idea that you're really clear is going to keep a roof over your head, keep, you know, trying out these different jobs. So, yeah. So you weren't like, I'm going to have my own PR firm or like something like that. You just felt deep down, I want to work for myself, but you didn't have a clear idea and uh, there was, was. A, there was a time I couldn't even tell you when probably in my mid to late 20s where I said that I wanted to create like the digital version of my dad's company and do more digital media stuff but I never got serious about doing that and I was pretty clear that I didn't want to be 
part of a family business and we should keep that separate. So I ran the digital department of a beauty PR firm. Um, and in 2012, I was working there. And there was a period of time over about three months where walking down the streets of New York City, I couldn't get more than two blocks. And I would feel completely winded, have to pause, often get in a taxi because I couldn't get further. Or I was living in a third floor walk up and I tried to walk the stairs. Actually, I had an elevator, but I prefer the stairs. And I would take the stairs and I would get to the top and collapse on my couch. And something just wasn't right. I mean, something was going on with my breathing and my lungs. I didn't know what was happening. So I, I went to a doctor, my you know regular general practitioner, and she took some blood work, I think, and basically said, oh, I think you have bronchitis. At one point, she said pneumonia. She gave me a bunch of antibiotics and inhalers. And three months later, absolutely nothing had changed. I still couldn't breathe properly. And at this time, I'm running the digital department at this beauty PR firm. They'd never had a digital team before. And there was a lot of stress and pressure around me acquiring new clients and working with people and, and doing things successfully there, building a team and all that. And so in January 2012, uh, I, I decided that it was time. My mom decided it was time. The Jewish mother that she is said, it's time. You got to see a specialist. Clearly this GP is not really cutting it. And so I went to a pulmonologist who did a full day of testing at NYU. And the next day she called me and said, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah. She said, are you with your parents? I said, no. She said, well, I think you should get them on the call before we talk, which like, who wants to hear that? I'm 27 years old. I live alone. Like, what do you mean? And so I called my parents, couldn't get through to them. I knew they were at the gym. And so when she got back on the phone with me, she said, you have a cyst the size of a golf ball in your right lung and we mm -hmm. need to have surgery to remove it immediately. So that was like a huge, huge, like, what are you saying? Where is this coming from? What's going on in my body? And how long have I been living with this thing? I promise this all relates back to my career. All good. <laughs> we don't even, it's not all about career here. <laughs> it's all about life. So, so for me, it was like the shocking news. And the backstory to this is that at 10 years old, I was diagnosed with a rare primary immunodeficiency called hyper IgE or Job syndrome. And I had struggled for the first 10 years of my life with lots of skin issues and ear infections and just infections in general, and no one knew what to do with me. And my mom took me to every doctor, healer, specialist, tried every diet that's hot now that was really weird and kooky then, and nothing seemed to work for me. And finally at 10, I went to an immunologist who was like, blood test done, great, you've got Job syndrome. Okay, what do I do with this information? And she was like, we don't really know. We don't have many people out there who have this. In 2020, here we are now, there's less than 300 of us diagnosed in the world. Wow. So, that's so interesting that there is a that. term that also like, oh, this is it, but that's so rare. And are they still like, here is your word. Yeah. We have exactly. nothing else for you. <laughs> here exactly. is your word. <laughs> so, so 25 years ago, having very little information, 
I just sort of brushed it under the rug because we didn't really know what to do or who else to explore with. And to be honest with you, especially at that age, I wanted to live as normal of a life as possible. And so I didn't want to be a guinea pig. I didn't want to be like poked and prodded anymore. I had enough of that. And I really tried to just sort of live my life, put band-aids on things as they came up, you know, emotionally and physically, and just sort of move on. Um, I told nobody about what I was going through in all those years. And so fast forward to that 27-year-old who finds out that I need to have my lung, a quarter of my right lung removed. Uh, my doctor said, you have to have this removed, but we decided it was time to go back to the immunologist who initially diagnosed me to find out what her recommendation would be and if I should do this. And again, I can picture where I was sitting, where, what I was wearing, calling her and saying, what do you think about surgery? And she said, you will not make it through the surgery if you go through with this. And why, why, be, what, what, what in the disorder would make it that you wouldn't be able to get through the surgery? She just thought it was way too risky to do and that my immune system was so shot to begin with. Okay, because of your immune system be, that you wouldn't be able to come back from going exactly. through the surgery and I'm guessing like going under and all of that stuff as well. Exactly. So I have one doctor who's known me for 24 hours who I thought I trusted saying you have to do this. Doctor who's known me for 17 years at that point who's saying you absolutely cannot do this. You will not survive. So the third thing we did was we went down to the National Institute of Health where there was a team there that had been researching hyper IgE and Job syndrome and many patients who had it over the years, but I had refused as a 10 year old to go see them because again, I wanted to live my life. I didn't want to be a guinea pig, but this seemed like a time, let's go see the experts. So my parents and I drove down to Bethesda, met with this team, and ultimately they said, yes, this is a very risky thing to do, but we think it's really important for you to do. We have no idea how long the cyst has been in your lung. It could be months, it could be years. I hadn't had a CAT scan since I was 11 and I was 27 at the time. So to this day, you know, eight years later, we still don't know. Um, but they were really clear, you gotta do this. There's no other way to remove whatever's going on in your lung. So I will remind you, I'm working this super high stress job at this time and I'm about to have surgery and went on medical leave for two months. So went on medical leave, my boss was pretty understanding at the beginning and then there came a time where I was going back to work and she was like, you know, looking for an employee that was gonna give 110% and it was really hard for me to give 75% because I was still recovering. Trisha here bringing you a brief interruption to tell you about one of the best purchases I've ever made, my infrared sauna blanket. Yeah, it's like a sleeping bag. You don't sleep in it. <laughs> I get in, I wear long pants, long sleeve shirt, socks, have lots of water nearby. I lay it down either on my bed or the ground, turn on a show or a podcast and lay in it for about 45 to 60 minutes and sweat, sweat, sweat. It feels so, so good. It's like an instant reset for my mind, for my body, for my nervous system. I have fibromyalgia, which we talked about on my episode with Harper on her podcast. And 
that means I got some stuff going on in my body. But even if I have stuff for my body from exercising, not exercising, long drive, standing all day, whatever it is, this feels so good. If I do it midday or in the morning, it gives me energy. I do it at the end of the day. It helps me sleep. It's bananas how good it makes me feel in so many different ways. Okay, you got to go check it out. Use the link in the show notes or you can go to bit.ly slash joy sauna. Yeah, I gave you a little link of my own bit.ly slash joy sauna and check it out or just check out the links in the show notes. And you can also use my code joy75 to get $75 off. They also have an interest-free payment plan. You can do that with the code. Feel free to DM me at your joy. I'll just give you any questions because seriously, I am obsessed with this thing. I've had it for almost two years now. Best purchase ever. Go get it. So you had it recovered. But then, yeah, you're like, okay, my two months is up. I'm reporting back to work and she's expecting you like, all right, we need whatever, 60, 80 hours a week. I'm I'm making stuff, up, but it sounds like a lot of those jobs are like Easily, yeah. <laughs> long, long hours. You, yeah, you don't pay attention to time. You answer these <laughs> emails and this and you keep going. And you were like, yeah, still recovering. But I think at that point, especially that age and working in this industry, I was convinced my, I, I convinced myself that I had to keep pushing. I had to do more. I had to do more. I couldn't disappoint. I had to get to inbox zero. You know, I remember getting an email on a Saturday night saying, why didn't this tweet about Beyonce's nails not go out? I mean, it, it was just sort of very important, very important things that I just tried I almost to almost fell off my chairs. <laughs> I know, but, but it's real. I think I have some of these things. You know, it's not life or death, you know, considering I had worked in this community service thing and done something that actually made a difference in people's lives. It's like this tweet didn't go out and it did feel like life or death because that's how it was treated at this company. And so, yes, surgery went extremely, extremely well. Recovery was really challenging. I was on really heavy duty drugs for a long time but then tried to get back in, into work and acclimate again. But I wasn't 100% like perfectly recovered. And my breathing was still off and my sort of function, I wasn't as high functioning as I had been. And I remember a time being in my apartment, probably two plus months after surgery, my mom had come over and she kept being like, can you close your computer? Like you're, I think at that point I had said, uh, I'd work part-time that I really couldn't do full-time. And my mom said to me, close your computer. Like you need to take a break. No, no, no. I need to do this. I need to do this. And just sort of kept slamming away at the computer of never allowing myself to be a disappointment at this company uh, and making sure my clients were happy and that my boy boss was happy and not really taking my health and my well-being into consideration at that point. And it was really clear with the help of my mom that this job was not the place for me. As much as I love, you know, nail polish and beauty products, and that seems to be a theme on this, in this <laughs> conversation today, doing it professionally was not really the thing for me. So I ended up hiring a career coach hmm. and my mom, my friend's mom suggested this woman 
looking back, she was totally sort of kooky and strange. And I am shocked she's who helped me. But we did the Myers-Briggs assessment and sort of reviewed what it was that I was truly passionate about. I felt like I got on this hamster wheel of just doing these jobs in beauty and with things that I was passionate about, but did I really love what I was doing? And so she had me make this list of companies that I was really inspired by. And I put, you know, Tom's Shoes and sort of social good companies. And then I started looking into jobs at these places to see what was available or who had jobs that were interesting to me. And after a while, I wasn't really into it. It didn't really, I don't know. I, I just wasn't wowed with working for a brand with products. It didn't really excite me so much. I think I needed a total shift. And there was this woman that I had been observing for a while and getting her emails and knew that she had an event production company in the health and wellness space. And I was like, maybe there's something here and I should reach out to her. She had been working through an old teacher of mine, had a connection to her. I don't even remember all the moving pieces, but basically I worked, well, basically I reached out to this woman and said, any chance you're hiring, I love what you're doing. Uh, I need to get out of this job that I'm in. And so I met her and basically like overnight, I accepted this job doing event production and marketing for health and wellness brands and nonprofit organizations. It was only four of us working there. We had a lot more flexibility and freedom to sort of do the things that we wanted to do. We worked from home part-time. We were out of WeWork and then Soho House at one point. And I felt like it was, the, it was going to be my last job before I started a business, whether I was there for a year, five years, or 10. I just knew that this was the best it was going to be working for someone else that understood that my health and my well-being needed to be a priority. And if we were going to produce a four-day event, that I was going to meditate in the middle of the day for my own well-being, and no one was going to stop me from that. And that was never going to be the case working in the beauty business. And how did you go, though, from like, you know, you're starting at the wake-up calls of, okay, this isn't for me. Your mom is like also nudging you. But also, so then you find another person, company to work for, which feels great, but also, but then that you become so clear that I am going to need to met, like, you know, because that's also, you could just find another job. This one feels better. And so, and they're more aware. And so that got, but then you could still feel this pressure of like, but I can't like take a break right now. Like I have less hours and this boss is more understanding and this is more aligned, but like that you got so clear of, I really have to prioritize my health. I think the big thing is that my mom paved the way for much of my childhood and sort of preteen years of diets and recommendations of supplements to take. And I either was like, fine, I'll do this or didn't do it. I never was so, you know, passionate about taking this new supplement or trying this diet or anything that was sort of good for me. I didn't really understand the concept. I didn't really understand that it would like actually change things and because I tried so much of it none of it really worked. It was like, there's no proof here. And I think a lot of it is psychological of like, if I didn't believe in it, yeah, it definitely wasn't going to work. But I think there had to come a time and this was clearly a huge breaking point for me of, I need to prioritize myself. It's not just about delivering to a boss or a client. Like I need to be my best self in order to be able to help other people. 
And so it was like small shift. I, you know, started managing my diet a little bit better, practicing yoga and realizing the power of that. Um, one of the clients that we had at our company was the David Lynch Foundation. So I learned transcendental meditation through them. And that was life changing for me. So, and I think it was also finding different groups of friends and being surrounded by different people that had more of a positive influence on me of just sort of embracing taking care of yourself, sort of the self-help personal development world, which I was never really aware of or cared to pay attention to. So this became a time where it was a lot of self-discovery and a lot of realization that Yes, I want to be an amazing hard worker and sort of don't know how not to be, but it's important for me to take care of myself too. Yeah. And I've, yeah, I have a hard time taking or doing things that I don't feel the effects of. Like supplements are a challenging thing for me because like, yeah, some of them probably are doing good things in my body, but it's just like, if I'm not actually feeling it, it does. I have a hard time paying for that thing <laughs> regularly and putting it in my exactly. body. So yeah, I pretty much only do that. So, okay. And so then how long, where, where came the call to then finally go out on your own and how long did you end up working for that company? And like, so what did I you start to see? Company, yeah, I was at that company for two and a half years and met a lot of people in the personal development space. We were doing events with Marie Forleo and Gabby Bernstein and Mastin Kip and um, Nick Ortner, who I know you've had on the podcast and all these incredible people. And I learned more about the coaching world aside from just this one career coach that I had and started having conversations with people and understanding what it is that they did and how they did it. There was this one time where my boss called me into a meeting with no context, just sort of said, I'd like you to join me in this meeting. And I sat in this room with her and this other woman who ended up being Stephanie Ziv. I don't know if you know her. I um, know her through like the soul camp community because I was at the first soul camp and I think I met her at the first soul camp. Yeah. So I don't know her personally, but yeah, I like see, I'll see her name popping around. <laughs> so, so at that point I had never met her, but the three of us sat in a room. I don't know exactly what happened in that room. All I know is that in some way she was coaching my boss and I, to this day, don't know why I was brought into the room and asked to sit on, sit, sit in on this. But I emailed Steph that night and was like, what just happened in there? Like, what do you do for a living? How does this work? I want to do what, you're do what you do. And so she is a coach. And I started to, ju just, to just have conversations with people and learn other coaches' ways of doing things. Did you go through training? How do you get your clients? How much money do you make? Like, is this a sustainable business? And I talked to about 15 to 20 different people from all over the country, trying to understand what they did. But Steph was really that person that I was like, I want what she has. And so in 2014, I went through a coaching training program, the Institute for, for, Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching, IPEC. And while I was working full-time at this job, I went through this program for nine months. And it, for me, was mostly about personal development for myself, but also learning the skills to become a coach and be able to support other people. And so in fall 2014, things were shifting at the company I was working at, and my boss gave us the option to work part-time or to go freelance. 
And it felt like a really good opportunity for me to explore starting a business, see if this was actually something that could, you know, sustain itself and also have the foundation of working for this company and making some money through this company. So that's what I did. That was November, 2014. Uh, I started taking on some clients and they were all people with totally different challenges that they were coming to me. And at that point, you know, I built this website. It was actually the first thing I invested in paying someone to create a website for me and looking back on the copy on the site. It was so vague. I wasn't targeting anybody. It was like, whoever wants to be my client, I can help you with any problem you have. <laughs> so I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure that that's how yeah mine <laughs> I'm like I, I mean I was so passionate but yeah exactly um and how did you even start like yes you build a website but how do you start to get those first clients it's not like you put a website up and then hold up everyone just starts calling it <laughs> even in 2020 that's still not a exactly thing. So I I we had peer clients through the program okay and there, and there were obviously non-paid, but this guy that I was working with was about 10 years older than me and was interested in quitting smoking. And somehow I helped him through quitting smoking. And I was talking to my friend's girlfriend at the time and told her that I was helping him. And she was like, oh my God, can you help me quit smoking too? And I'm like, as a non-smoker, I'm helping two people <laughs> quit smoking right now. This is so strange, but sure, yeah. And so she became my first client, wow. still my client to this day. Um, and it was all word of mouth. It was just having conversations with people, telling them what I could do. It was a previous client's a previous client from that company, her daughter, an old coworker, someone's friend. You know, just sort of putting the word out there that I was doing this. I was certainly promoting it on social media and sending out newsletters. And just sort of seeing who would bite and figuring it out as I went, which seems to be the thread that keeps everything together in my career is just figuring out stuff as I go. I'm not a planner. I'm not a big goal setter. I just, I just do. Yeah. When I'm guessing your background in PR isn't helping because now it's like, it can be a little bit more challenging when suddenly you're like, okay, it's me. I'm selling myself and this thing that I'm pretty sure I'm good at, but like, you know, or like, you know, but yeah, you still have the like reflex of, let me tell you about this thing. It just happens to be me coaching you like instead of a lip gloss or a air private it's plane really or whatever. <laughs> but that's yeah, so really different. Even when you believe so strongly in what you're doing and what you're capable of and you see the results, it can still be like, let me tell you how awesome I am. <laughs> totally. And, and, and I think that's where like imposter syndrome comes in a lot. And I know it's something that we've discussed, you know, previously, but I think it's a huge thing of like, who's to say I'm qualified to do this. But what's interesting is when I did talk to these 15 to 20 people before going through my training and telling them about my background and what I had been doing for the last 10 years, every single one of them said to me, you have the upper hand in having this foundation of marketing and PR and events and just communication and business skills that most people don't do going into becoming a coach. When I went through my training, there were people who were teachers, or hadn't worked and were like stay-at-home moms and didn't have the skills and foundation to run the business side of things. Yeah, and, and it's sort of news a business. Flash, yeah, newsflash to people who go through coaching trainings, you don't typically learn how to become a business 
owner, you learn how to become a coach. I get emails all the time from people saying, what did you think of your coaching program? I said, if you want to learn how to coach, sure, it's valuable, but don't expect to come out of there as like a perfect business owner. So it was a lot of just figuring things out as I went. As I said, I started more as like, I think I called myself a lifestyle management coach. I then transitioned to become a career transition coach because as I said, I had so many different jobs in my life that people resonated with that. And they were like, well, if she's changed jobs this many times, I can too, and she can help me. So I worked with many clients over the years, helping them transition from one job to the next. But I found that a lot of them were going from one corporate job to another. And as someone who really didn't enjoy working in corporate, it was hard to help and, and promote that and sort of be passionate about helping them make that transition. So it was hard for me to, you know, be supportive on this topic. And I met, met a lot of people or a handful of friends who had HR backgrounds or recruiting backgrounds that became career coaches. And I'm like, they're way more suited for this job than I am. And I started referring people to my friends instead and saying, this person's going to be so much better at this than I am. And I decided eventually to focus on business coaching and working with people who are solopreneurs, small business owners, who don't have business partners, don't have mentors, don't have a team, and really want to create businesses that are not necessarily million billion dollar ideas, but they're small businesses and they literally don't know where to start. And I help them figure that out. Yeah. So people that do have a passion of, I want to help people. I want to do this. I'm a healer, whatever their thing is. But yeah, they don't have the business, you know, needs of like, okay, I, I am now this. Where is everyone lining up or just and then there's so much because then the business. Yeah, it's just like putting business stuff out there, which is also changing. But I think it's then I'm sure in that you're helping them with business, but that's still a lot of confidence in who they are and what they're doing and reminding them of like, yes, you know, talk about yourself because, you know, it's not about you. It's for the client, like what you can do for them. And like that's stuff of stuff, right, that comes in too besides like here, here's how to run a business. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing that I've recognized even more so in recent years, even months, of the more you put yourself and your story out there, rawness, realness, ickiness, uh, is what resonates with people. And so I think a lot of people have come to me trying to be as polished and sort of quote unquote perfect in putting their content out there. And the things that resonate with people is when they're not that way. So I think it's been fun to be able to help train people and educate people on how to build these brands from a real genuine place and to sort of show that they don't have all the answers and know absolutely everything. I am very, very clear when I talk to prospective clients that I'm not the right fit for everybody. If you're looking for someone who's going to show up in a suit and went to Columbia University or, or got my coaching degree from Columbia University, I'm not that person. I'm casual. I curse. But I'm going to help you and I'm going to be able to support you through this process because I've been there and I have clients who have been there that I've helped pave that way. So I think there's a lot of challenges that come with running a small business. And there's so many hats that you have to wear from marketing yourself and social media and emails and website and admin and finances that so much of your time is spent doing those things, not the actual work that you signed up to do. 
I remember talking to a friend years ago who was a makeup artist and she said that less than 10% of her time was actually applying makeup on her clients. And it was a real wow factor to me of like, this is business. This is small business. When you don't have a team, you do have to wear all of those hats. Yeah. Um, solopreneur here. <laughs> uh, and then what, when did you decide to launch your podcast made visible and what inspired that? Yeah, absolutely. So in early 2018, um, a friend came to me in Tel Aviv and asked me if I was interested in helping to produce her podcast called We Are Mothers, which was all about motherhood and sort of the icky, sticky parts of motherhood, and that it's not all just, you know, perfect and wonderful, obviously. And I helped her produce that, and I loved being the producer and sort of pulling all the pieces together. And as someone who lives with an invisible illness and have for my entire life, as I said, I didn't share about it for the first 27 years of my life, but in going through the process of having surgery and recovering from that and prioritizing my health, I did start sharing about it and I started writing about it for different publications and just being more open to having conversations. And when I started to do research to see who was creating communities or content around invisible illness for people who are able-bodied and have the ability to work and maintain friendships and go to school and be in relationships I wasn't really finding that content. Everything I found online was extremely depressing of just sort of, I don't want to say woe is me, but just a lot of sort of sad stories, which is definitely the reality for a lot of people living with invisible illness. But in my case, I really never allowed my health to stop or dictate the way that I lived my life. I continued to run a business. I had all these jobs. I have friends. You know, I've lived my life with this illness, but it's never been a huge defining part of my identity. And so I realized that there wasn't any audio content, any podcast out there about this topic. And I am someone that fell madly in love with podcasts a few years ago and just sort of said, okay, I got to do this. I got to create my own. So in July, 2018, I launched Made Visible and we share stories of people living with or affected by invisible illness. And when I say affected by it's because I've included caregivers, doctors, healers, business owners, or business owners who have started businesses because of their invisible illness or family members invisible illness. And it's really just helping to have people share their stories of what they've been through and how they live their lives, many of whom have never shared it before and others who have shared it many, many times. Yeah. I mean, as I was, uh, I was on the show and we'll make sure to link that in the show notes to this one. But yeah. And, you know, people have heard it comes up differently and different stuff of mine that I, yeah, was always suffered with stuff and was diagnosed with fibromyalgia at 15. But it is such a, I've done so much and I do show up for life and I do this. So, but I yet have, you know, I live with it daily and some days are better and I have all these ways to manage it. And so that does mean the same thing, like really showing up for myself and making sure that I'm taking care of myself and that. And um, but yeah, it can be it can still feel so lonely and still feel like in some ways because I'm able bodied and because I show up and because I do these things that 
people then somewhat don't believe me or can't understand what I actually go through on a daily basis. And not that I'm like looking for everyday sympathy, but I've had many times in my life that is heartbreaking. Whereas when I'm having a really hard time, when it like a flare up comes and then I'm like, why doesn't feel like anybody believes in me or is like, can you just even bring me some water without me asking? And and it's heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, I think the big thing for me and for what I've heard from many of my guests is the invisible side is the most challenge is one of the most challenging parts of it, of not feeling seen and not feeling heard and feeling really alone in what you're going through. You know, over the last few days I've been feeling not so hot of just sort of physically drained and I have like a heaviness in my chest and the lung stuff for me is like constant. There's always some sort of issues and it's always figuring out what's the best solution and what's sort of my norm. But the last few days I haven't felt hundred percent and there's really not much to be done about it, but I don't want people feeling bad for me. But at the same time, what is that language that people can show their support and show that they care and ask those questions of, is there a way that I can help you? How can I help you? You know, recognizing that what I'm going through is challenging, even if they don't get it and can't feel it in their body themselves. Yeah. And I just remembered that on your podcast that I had sort of uh, compared it to grief and how we don't really know, like even like me, who's really experienced grief when losing my father and like what that's like and how much that shaped my life that yet still when you know a friend of mine when somebody else experiences a sudden grief or any kind of grief like there's so many types of grief it doesn't have to do with losing like a death a grief a relationship a you know grief of a dream whatever <laughs> like different things that it's still like um this that we don't like even though we understand grief that we don't necessarily understand how that person is experiencing it so like yeah it's the same with invisible illness and so even like i don't even though you're saying this is like yeah i don't know exactly what you're feeling you don't know what i'm feeling but just like how can we as a society, be more compassionate to people. And instead of not looking at them, it's sort of like, oh, or like, well, you can't be sick or you can't be in pain because you've done all these things to like, where can you just like, yeah, come from a more compassionate space and be like, oh, I don't know what that would feel like to you. Is there anything I can do for you? Like that, just like, is there any way I could help you? Like that sort of thing, which when you're in grief, like that kind of question can be like, I don't know because I'm so lost. But yeah, like figuring out these ways to like when you don't understand what somebody is feeling and going through, whether that's emotionally or physically, like how can you still yet extend a little, hey, I see you. I don't understand it maybe at all, but that's got to be hard. There was a guest on my podcast and everyone who's listened to my podcast knows how crazy I am about this person, uh, Letty Cotton Pogrebin wrote a book called How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick. Oh, And I read it years ago and it just felt like this total manual that I wanted everyone in the world to read that gave you actual examples of things to say and things not to say and what to show up at someone's house with and when to ask and when to just sort of barge in and be a compassionate, helpful friend. And I think it's an incredible, incredible resource of no matter what it is, it could be grief, it could be breast cancer, it could be fibromyalgia, it could be a rare de immune deficiency, whatever it is, people need to learn to become more compassionate of others. And I think the big thing to me is like, I have this fear of people feeling bad for me and identifying me as the sick person, you know, 
right now going through this pandemic and being someone who's extremely immunocompromised, I feel like I'm in this like special extra category that I'm not really proud to be in. And it makes things a bit harder where random people or old friends are reaching out to me in the nicest way possible saying, you know, I'm sure this is so hard for you given your situation. And while I appreciate it so much that people are thinking of me, I hate being in this club. Mm. And I hate being defined as someone that like needs to be taken extra care of right now because of my health and how much more high risk I am than so many other people, especially my age. Yeah. It's a lot to navigate. (laughs) We'll have to definitely look up that book and listen to that episode too. And I'll link those as well. Yeah. Uh, Because it, yeah, it's again, it's like, some days I do just want somebody to ask, what would you like? But at the same time, I don't. I just want like, just bring me water. Just bring me a snack that you think. (laughs) And that was one of the times I was having. I remember years and years ago, I was having a really like tough time. And a friend showed up with this like assortment of treats and kombucha and like favorite and random things. And I still think back and it's like, that was the kindest thing anyone ever done for me. And she, cause she didn't know what I, I was feeling or how to support me. And I was like, you brought me special peanut butter and gluten-free pretzels and kombucha. Thanks. Like, <laughs> I think the thing that's so interesting about that is that people expect that it needs to be some grand gesture and the smallest thing makes an impact. A good friend of mine, Lauren Chiarello, who is a two-time cancer survivor and was on the podcast she constantly sends people handwritten cards and she'll post on Facebook every few months asking people if they need sort of a smile put on their face and to send her their address. And it really makes people stay. And what a simple gesture. What does it take to do something like that? Another example I'll just give is another guest I had on the podcast, Mallory Gotthealth, who is also a client of mine. She has a company called Find Yourself Find Yourself Boxes, and it is, it is mental health boxes to support yourself. So either it can be given as a gift, a gift, or you send um, it to someone you love. And they're all sort of targeted to different challenges, whether it's anxiety, sleep deprivation, depression, seasonal affective disorder, any of these sort of things. So it's not just like candles and face masks, which are lovely things, and I'll take all the ones you want to send me, but this is more so products that can help you if you actually have mental health challenges and these things can support you. They are not the solution because that's certainly not, it's not therapy, it's not medication, it's not all of that, but it's certainly things that could support people going through this stuff. Yeah. Little things really do. I mean, even just a text message thinking about you, like, (laughs) just want to say, I love you. Like, you know, and that's, I try to do. And that's actually something sometimes when I'm feeling low and alone and I'm like, where is everyone? I will can't sometimes reach out to people and say, Hey, I like going through a hard time, but also sometimes just sending other people that I love a message of just like, Hey, I love you. Thinking of you. Like, it does a lot for me. And then that person, you don't know how often I get a message back like, wow, I really needed that right now. Thank you. And that's people that don't have, you know, like that's just people living the life. (laughs) For sure. I think especially right now during the pandemic, anything you can do for people in regular life and those living with invisible illness, anything you can do to show that you love and care about them, text message, card, gift, phone call, 
whatever it is really makes an impact these days. Yeah, especially with so much isolation, people not having much more or less personal contact than ever. Completely. Okay, I'm going to get to... Uh, I'm going to pull up an image here. So these are all phrases that go on keychains in my product line. And I ask every guest to pick not necessarily which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel they want as a reminder in their life right now and why. So I will say I did check this out before (laughs) because I love them so much. You know, I, I know you're big on the shoulds and so am I. And I have a screenshot on my phone of an old message about shoulding that I always look back on. So I'm going to go with fuck the shoulds, do the wants. Um, And I think the reason for that is I think as a solopreneur, as someone who is running a business that should, I put in air quotes for those who can't see, um, have a funnel set up and have like all this stuff set up for my business to sort of run without me and have passive income because everything's set up so perfectly. I have no interest in that stuff. And there's aspects of it that works that I'm open to doing, but I definitely feel like I should be doing this stuff and I don't want to. So there are some things that I'm outsourcing and feel good about outsourcing. And I'm really big on outsourcing things that I don't like doing or aren't good at, but I am really big, especially right now, about doing the things that I want to be doing and spending the the time with things that I'm passionate about and actually see that my clients and my podcast listeners find valuable. Yep. I mean, you know, you know, I'm all about that phrase. But yeah, the way I've run business as well, it's like, yeah, there. that's great. There's a lot of ways that this is the way you should run a business and you should make money and that do work. And it's just, but yeah, I have to come from a, do I actually want to use that method? Does that feel good to me? (laughs) I think, I also think there's a lot of coaches out there that are like, here's the method to become a millionaire and and sign up for my course and you will get all the things that I have. And while that could be possible, that language has never resonated with me ever. Yeah. And it just seems impossible. Like, here you go. Just checklist all these items off and everything's going to work. <laughs> like they everything's figured so it out unique. so you can too. Besides the fact that life is always changing. So those things might have worked for you and then already like six months later or whatever. Like, it's just everything is so individual and changing that I, I have a hard time following that. This is the way you should do this. <laughs> this is the the key work. This is the way to make the whatever. <laughs> hate it. I have no tolerance for it. And, and I've never bought into those things. They've never got me. Um, what is a go-to to raise your joy levels? So non-pandemic life, definitely live music. Uh, I see a lot of concerts and attend a lot of festivals typically and majorly missing, missing it now. Now I would say, you know, going out for walks, Um, and just moving my body. And it's so important to do, especially in sitting behind a computer for so many hours of the day. And and I think also just sort of spending time and connecting with friends and people I care about, whether that's virtually these days or having people visit in outdoor setting, that is like, just sort of puts a huge smile on my face and fills me up. Yep. Same. And it's amazing how just like just even stepping outside can like shift things. Like for me, I don't know, just like staring at the sky is like makes me breathe deeper. 
For sure. It is the first thing I will do the minute we stop recording. <laughs> uh, okay. I ask everybody to apply this phrase to their life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it can be like a habit or a way of being. What is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is? What's easiest for me is to take care of others. And what's best for me is to take care of myself. And I will say a big thing for me is that I'm a connector. I'm a resource for so many people. And so whether it's, you know, actually facilitating relationships or connections with clients or friends, or it's seeing a Facebook post of people looking for a recommendation and me feeling the need that my response needs to be added in and that it's going to be the best one. What am I looking to prove? You know? So I think the big thing that I'm recognizing recently, especially during the pandemic is to do things that I want to do, not just for other people, and finding communities and ways to fill my cup, not just providing that for other people. You know, I'm all about that, too. <laughs> um, all right. The last question is, the name of the podcast is Claim It, because I believe that our feelings of being worthy, successful, fulfilled, lovable, enough, whatever it is, are not out there somewhere. Once I have this, do this, be this, then I'll feel it forever. End. <laughs> so what are you claiming for yourself right now? I'm claiming that I'm a writer because although I didn't discuss it a lot on this show, I have been spending a ton of time writing and I'm currently facilitating a writing class. And although I feel like I'm a facilitator or teacher's assistant, I'm also a writer. I'm not just an aspiring writer. Yes. Claim it. Woo. It's scary, but I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. You got to do it. I love it. So awesome. Thank you so much for sharing so much and for the work that you do with businesses and for the Invisible Illness community and beyond. Thank you so much, Trisha. You're so welcome. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Harper. Definitely go check her at harperspiro.com, harper underscore Spiro on Instagram. If you are a service-based solopreneur or small business owner. And um, yeah, she has a podcast called Made Visible. I will link to that and my episode there as well. Please subscribe if you have not yet to the podcast. And if you could leave a review, that would mean so much to me because reviews really mean a lot in podcast world and like how they are found and discovered by other people. And if you leave a review, screenshot it and send it to me at podcast at yourjoyologist.com and I will send you a gift from my product line. Just like I have everybody pull a keychain. I've got affirmation decks, mugs, journals, notepads, ornaments. For the holiday season, perfect gifts for all the people you love in your life. Got, you know, slightly sassy to stuff to really sweet affirmations. I am magic to let that shit go. There's all sorts of variety there. <laughs> you can also purchase my app, daily inspiration app called Own Your Awesome in the Apple app or Google Play stores. And, um... Oh yeah, for all things me, yourdryologist.com. I'm at yourdryologist on social media. I love hearing from you. I love seeing you share the episodes. 
feel free to DM me there and let me know that you listened and what you loved and also what you are claiming for yourself right here, right now, today. What are you claiming? I like to just say the first thing that's coming to mind. So you don't have to think too hard. It could be a word. It could be like something you want for your life. I claim peace. I claim I'm a badass. I claim I'm going to have that conversation I've been putting off. (laughs) All right. Please claim your joy, your worth, your value, your fulfillment. Claim your own love for yourself right here, right now.